Ross Welford studied English at Leeds University before moving to London and becoming a journalist. He then moved into television producing, working on such shows as This Morning with Richard Maidley and Judy Finnegan, Channel 4's Big Breakfast and the long-running Pet Rescue, amongst many others. He began writing his first book, Time Travelling with a Hamster, in 2014 and it was eventually published in January 2016. His second book, What Not to Do If You Turn Invisible, followed a year later and he has now had a further two books published with his latest title, The Kid Who Came From Space, due out in January 2020. He met recently with Nicky Gamble to talk about this new book, which as well as including a trained chicken, he describes as a story of sibling connection, friendship and interstellar adventure. Ross, uh, one of the perhaps most obvious questions to ask you is that um, all of your books have at their heart some seed to do with technology. Uh, whether it's 3D virtual reality, yeah. I'd love that. <laughs> um, artificial intelligence, time travel. I think we're due to have Martians coming from outer but not, space soon. Well, um, extraterrestrials, shall we say. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this interest in cosmology and science, is yeah. it something you read about a lot or do you just research it for your stories? I kind of make it up. Um, which is an, which is sounds odd, um, and it, the whole thing came about by accident. Uh, really, this sort of sci-fi-ish, techy, spacey thing. Um, it just came about because of time traveling with Amster. Mm. It was that happened to be a story I dreamt up. Um, not because I had any particular interest in it. It was just I had an idea for a story mm-hmm. um, involving a kid and a time machine. And I was very fortunate that that one took off um, like a rocket. And um, my publishers said, well, you know, we'd like another one. And they were lovely. They said I could write whatever I wanted to write. Um, but because Hamster had been... Um, so popular, I thought it would make sense to do something roughly, roughly in the same sort of genre, if you like. And so I ended up doing something about that. Wondering, yeah, I ended up doing something about um, a girl who discovered the secret of uh, invisibility. And after um, uh, that one came out, well, I was well established in a in a genre of doing these sort of. Um, mysterious, techie sci-fi things. Mm. So I've kind of stuck with it. Yeah. And I mean, I'm interested in all that. And of mm. course, I, I read a lot more about that now because mm. I try to find sources of new ideas. Mm. But, um, there was never a driving obsession mm. that made me write about that. Mm-hmm. Now, I do know that um, I think it was the publisher that told me that you've recently become a member of the Magic Circle. Is this right? Yeah. So I wondered whether science and magic, whether science is actually the new magic. Well, that's a a really good point. I think it was either Arthur C. Clarke or Isaac Asimov, I never remember one, that said, any science that's sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Mm. So yeah, there is a there is a link there. Um, I think the link is impossible stuff. Mm. You know, um, I've been fascinated by magic since I was a kid.
kid since I was since I was a small kid since I was about six or seven. Um, I love the idea of making impossible things happen, mm-hmm. uh, making impossible things appear as though they are really happening, and of course that's what you're doing in any sort of book, uh, whatever sort of book you're writing, whatever sort of fiction you're writing. These things are not real, and you're making them real within the pages of a book. Um, with my sort of my sort of stories, it's even more so. You know, it's a it's a it's a it's a time machine or a three D VR machine or something. It's something that is literally impossible, um, but it's becoming possible. So in a way, it's a you know, mm. it's a it's a bit like magic. Mm. Uh, I don't want to lose the magic circle for a moment because no? I know it's quite hard to. Am I right? I think I have visited the theatre, but uh-huh. only a certain number of seats, aren't there? It's so very small. <laughs> when, when one is vacated, there's a space for a new member. Is that right? I don't know. I think that used to be the case. Right. I think they might have um, uh, they, they might have relaxed that now. Okay. Um, I, I know I, I wasn't waiting around for some poor old culture to pop off before they allowed me in. I know oh. that's not the case. But it is, it's, it's without wanting to toot my own horn, it's quite exclusive, yes, um, yeah. and it's quite prestigious, um, and I'm very proud of it. I, I you know, it's been it's, it's a lifelong ambition, really. Fantastic. Well, I have to congratulate you on Thank that. You. Um, so, do you have to perform as part of the magic circle? You don't have to. I mean, in order to uh, in order to be accepted as a member, um, you have to do an audition. Um, so, and again, you don't have to be brilliant. I think they um, they want to know that you're competent. And that when you go out and perform with people knowing that you're a member of the magic circle, that you're not going to shame you're not going to shame them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you do have to uh, you do have to do an audition, and you have to you have to promise not to tell the secrets. Of course, and, all of and that. I would never so, press mm. for any of those <laughs> secrets. Anyway, back to the other kind yes. of magic. Because writing is, uh, as we've said, it's a kind of magic. You know, they're black marks on a page, but actually. Mm. I find that in itself amazing that from a few black marks on a page you can create these oh, images yeah. that are in people's brain. What could be more magic than that? That's right, yeah. I mean, I've, I, I used to do this thing um, in my talks and um, it's still in there as part of was one of the talks. Uh, the idea between... Um, the idea of, you'd say, a black mark, you know, what we would read as D-O-G, and it looks nothing like a dog, but when you see it... And, you, and from about the age of three or four or five people can mm. do this they see that and then they get an image mm. in their head of a dog mm. oh, that's, that's a kind of magic I mm. think mm. You know? and in your book The Dog Who Saved the World my mm. dog is probably different to the other dogs that other people see yes yeah, yeah it's fascinating um, I think one of the things uh, that I really admire uh, in your writing is Really, in spite of these big ideas in there, mm. a lot of it is quite ordinary. You know, it's every day. Mm. It's page-turning stuff. Mm. And that also, to me, is a kind of magic, that you can keep people turning the page with something that is seems to be every day, but there's always this one really big idea yeah. in there. Yeah. yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? I, it's not something I, I try to... Analyze too much, no. just in case I, you know, it gets in the way. I stop being mm. able to do it. Mm. But uh, I know what you mean. I, I, I allow myself one massive implausibility, you know, which would be a, a, a time machine, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, or in the next one, um, an alien mm. coming to Earth. You know, 
I allow myself that one thing. But if my readers are to swallow that, mm-hmm. everything else has got to be pretty much as mundane as possible. You know, the relationships in uh, among the characters um, have got to be recognisable and mm. and real. Their home life has got to be real. Their school life has got to be real and very, very contemporary. And that's, I suppose that's what I try to do, if anything. Mm. Uh, well, what it does is it makes that implausibility that you're talking about more plausible because of the ordinariness that surrounds it. Well, you're very kind. That's what I try to do. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there's a fantasy writer, great fantasy writer, you probably know Alan Garner, um, he once said that um, if you put a mandrake in some kind of fantasy land, then uh, it's not that scary. But if you put a mandrake roaming the hills of Cheshire, then you intensify that. There you go. Uh, that's, that's exactly it. Um, listening to you talk, it doesn't sound as though you come from uh, the northeast, but obviously, having read your biography, I know mm. that uh, that. Where you come from? Ray Pet, I've gone all posh now <laughs> that I've lived doing here for so long. I just wondered whether, um, because your books are often set mm-hmm. in that northeast Whitby yeah, Bay area, yeah. um, I just wondered whether setting the stories there enabled you to touch base with your own childhood in a way that allowed you to write a children's book. I think it probably did, although it wasn't. It wasn't really conscious at the time. I'd written, I'd written a draft of Time Travelling with a Hamster, which was set in that sort of nondescript, real but not real. It was a made-up contemporary town mm. on the south coast of England, you know, mm. with, a, with a, a fake name. And th- that's fine. But there was um, something about it that, uh, when I was rereading it, just struck me as not being very real and I think it was then that that's when I was discovering this thing about making everything real and I described this town using a mental map if you like of where I'd grown up so in my head as I was reading it it was Conoco to where I'd grown up in the northeast. and I, I just ended up thinking like, what if I just make it Conoco, move everything up, uh, up to the northeast. and once I did that Suddenly, it was it was like lift, it was like removing a veil from the story. Suddenly, you could see it clear. I thought, "All oh, right, this really, really works." It, g- it gave it a colour. Um, it gave me an excuse to make some of the characters Geordie, which mm. is quite fun. Um, the hamster, which in the book is called Alan Shearer, in the in the first draft was Eric Cantona. Now, for some reason, Alan Shearer is much much funnier, <laughs> you know. Um, and yeah, and so I just I just did it, I, and also because there's not that many books set in the northeast, mm. it made it a little bit more distinctive. So I just carried on doing that. I felt very very comfortable um, when I started doing the second one, um, Invisible. I thought I didn't want to make it the same, so I set it somewhere else. And as soon as I changed it again, it was like putting on a comfortable pair of shoes. I thought. Now nah, I'll do it in the northeast again, and so again, once I've done two, I thought, right, okay, this this was now becoming a thing. Um, yeah. Do you spend much time there now, or is that? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, mm. I've got family up there, so yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, you give it still that. Very, yeah, I'm still very connected with the with the area. Yeah. And the Geordie accent comes back much more when I can up there. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's important. That's important. Newcastle United. So. 
So while we're talking about things that you feel comfortable with, mm. I wanted to talk a little bit about the voice that you use as well, mm. because I think all four novels so far have been written in the first, first person. person. And the fifth one. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> is that, again, something you now feel really comfortable with and you, you move straight into the first person or do you have to think about it with every new book? I tend to go straight into it um, now. Um, I started off doing first person because uh, because I read Wonder by R.J. Palacio um, and I'd had this idea for a book and I couldn't get into it, I couldn't work out how to write it. The idea of me as a middle-aged man writing with the voice of a child had just never occurred to me. And then I read Wonder and R.J. Palacio writes as Augie um, and I thought, oh, she can do it. You know, maybe I should have given. And as soon as I started writing in the first person, I, I found my voice. So when it came to the second one, um, I thought, right, I'll, I'll stick with that because that worked. Mm. Um, and so the second one, it turned out fine. And so it came to the third one, and I thought, hmm, I don't, do I need to get stuck into this first person thing? So there's a whole section of the 1000 year old boy written in the third person. Which I had to lose at the edit. <laughs> it was a whole load. It was a whole load of backstory, which um, was fun, and I'm, I might actually go back to it as a prequel at some point. Um, so that that then became um, a, a first person book, but written with two voices, mm. two two separate voices in Thousand Year Old Boy, um, and that's when I thought, okay, this is what I do now. This is what, and uh, you know, I'm not ruling it out, but um, I quite like it. There's it's a, it's a, it's sometimes a bit limiting. Well, what what do you think the limitations? Well, are? the limit is that you've you've only got one point of view. Mm. But the, the the good thing is that it's very immediate, you know, and it sometimes having limitations on how you go on your on your point of view can sometimes be a ben, be a benefit. It can save you from going off into other uh, other directions that may not help your story, and. Um, I just think oh, I'm in good company, you know. Mm. First person writing's been around for years. It's yeah. interesting because I think it's more nuanced than one allows you to do this and the other allows you to do okay. that because you can um, have third person writing which is so closely focalised through a character mm. that you feel that you've you feel at the end that you've read a first person. Whereas uh, well, yes. for instance, I often feel, oh, I felt I I thought I'd read a first person story, and then I look back and I realise that right. it isn't. And yeah. actually, one of the things that you do that I, I think is, even though it's written in the first person, that somehow, and I think it's magic again, uh-huh. <laughs> you allow the reader to know more than the character. And that's quite well, that's amazing. Well, that's great. I don't know how I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, yeah, yeah don't, uh, don't analyse it too closely. No, I'll, I'll, but it's good uh, stuff. Well, so. that's nice. Thank you. <laughs> um, a couple of things that I wanted to pick out um, about things that you've se- said. Mm. Um, I think this is from Time Travelling with a Hamster. Yeah. Um, one of the characters says you're at liberty to follow your heart, but that's not always the best option. Oh, yeah. Do you think that that's uh, true of uh, your characters, that sometimes they get into trouble by following their hearts rather than their heads? Yes, yes, very much. I, I think that's a. Um, ultimately, it 
it probably should work out for them mm. um, because you, you know you want a happy ending. Um, but I, th- I, I think the children of about ten or eleven are the, um, it's my favourite age for children because they're on this cusp of discovering all you know. Certainly in the UK, it's about it's when we change schools, mm-hmm. and kids of about ten or eleven, they know that they're about to stop being children. Children, they're about to start becoming young adults, and it's a fascinating, scary time for them in a way. And I think they they do need to um, make those decisions themselves about whether they're following their hearts, whether they're following their heads, and. Um, they can make mistakes. So I think my characters often do that. Whether they follow their hearts or their heads, they can make mistakes. And then, you know, I think the good thing is that normally they yeah. normally get sorted out. They sort it out. But they have to sort it out themselves. And, yeah. they have to, and usually, and this is, a, this is almost, a, this is almost a, a, a cliche, if you like, of uh, certainly children's writing, but... You have to follow your you have to follow your heart. Ultimately, as long as it doesn't hurt uh, other people, mm. you have to do you have to do what you feel is right. Mm. And then I suppose closely related to that is the notion that you don't need a big villain for bad things to happen. No, you don't. You don't. And I love villains, but um, not all of my books have got the big villain. Mm. Um, and I think if I uh, what I've found is in writing books that are very, very contemporary, it's quite hard to have a true adult villain. Mm. Unless you're writing a book about, say, a, a, a typical family relationship. Mm. You might have a mother or a father, or an abusive uh, relationship within a family, which is not what I write about, mm. really. Um, but anybody else who's who has got harm of a child or children as their purpose... In the contemporary world, that's, going to be, that's really hard to pull off because they are genuinely evil and they'll have the police after them and it, it'll probably be getting far too dark for the sort of things that I write. So true villains like that um, are quite hard, I think, to pull off in a contemporary children's book. Whereas I guess in fantasy you're protected from that as you are in fairy tales where you get mm. your real villains because actually it's removed from you. Yes. This is too present in Exactly. Oh yeah, I mean if you're doing things like um, if, you, if, if you're doing fantasy you've got monsters and stuff or the supernatural you can have a ghost or uh, whatever and th- these are there are wonderful ways of exploring that. Just talking about the time in which the, the books are set mm. so um, The Dog Who Saved the World is set really cleverly, I thought, in a future that's only... It's not very futuristic. Mm. I mean, we've got a king... Yes. ...and yeah. the late queen who had a corgi. Yeah, so, yeah. so so you know where we're being placed here. Uh-huh. Um, I'm just interested in that, in that decision, really, for something that's very yes. near future. That was all refined in, in the edit. I knew that I needed it to be in the future because it was... Uh, there, there was technology that was more advanced than, uh, the, if you have, say, people who haven't read the book, the the, the plot revolves around um, a mad scientist who develops a, a virtual reality space, a massive dome that can uh, create a a three D version of the future using uh, 
massively powerful computer technology. So in order for that to be basically plausible, it can't be right now, because we know that that... But I wanted it to be as close as possible to now, so that it didn't become distancing. So in my head, it's about ten years from now. Mm-hmm. So recognisably now-ish, we have a king. Mm-hmm. Now that's going to prove wrong. And we're back uh, to know, the female prime minister uh, as well. Is there a female prime minister? <laughs> yeah. Okay, then it's back. Or maybe him. maybe we had a female uh, prime right, minister exactly. when you were writing it. Uh, yeah, we did. Actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's things like free taxis everywhere. Free bike hire, and then that was something that, that that happened when I was writing. And suddenly, London got uh, mm. uh, got free bikes. So I thought I was on the right lines for that. But of course, this is what uh, good science fiction writers do. Yeah. They, you know, if you think about people like Jules Verne, their yeah. technology is just a yeah. little bit advanced of the real. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I wanted to be. I didn't want it to be too far in the future that it became mm. off-putting. Mm. I suppose. Mm. So um, we do have a new book coming in January and mm-hmm. I think you're probably far enough on in the process to not feel too bad to tell us a oh, little no, bit no, no. about I'd it. Love to. <laughs> I'd love to. It's called, um, it's called The Kid Who Came From Space and uh, it starts with a child gone missing, um, a 12-year-old uh, girl uh, called Tammy has gone missing one Christmas Eve. Uh, from a small village in uh, Northumberland, a real place called Kielder. Um, near the forest. Uh, it, it, very near the forest and near, mm. the, near the reservoir. And this all happens over Christmas. And, and it's horrible, you know, it's, uh, and, and, and getting the balance of that right, was quite tricky, and it's all horrible. Um, her twin brother uh, goes out fishing with a friend uh, to try to take his mind off it, and they meet an alien who tells them, do what I say, and you might get your sister back. Don't tell anyone, or you'll never see her again. And so that sets up this dilemma for uh, Ethan, who's the the twin boy. Can he tell the secret of having met this alien? No one's going to believe him anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, It comes up uh, with that thing that I've played with before Mm -hmm. about children having to keep secrets um, from adults. And... Very often, I think, uh, you know, they tell the adults the secret anyway, but it's so, so outlandish that, that the adults won't believe them. So they are set in, uh, set in train this um, massive adventure uh, where this small, hairy, um, humanish alien is trying to help them to get Ethan's sister back. She's been abducted. And... The, the, the thrills ensue. So the rest uh, we'll have to read for our, ourselves. Yeah, it's. Um, but I, uh, th- this is one that uh, that really, really excited me. Uh, when I finally, when I finally realised what the idea was, I started off writing something completely different, um, and this idea of an alien uh, coming to Earth was in the background of the idea, mm-hmm. but I was resisting it. And I was resisting making it the focus of the story um, because I thought, oh, God, it's been done before, you know. I thought of uh, E.T., you know, the movie, uh, uh, Frank Cultural Boyce had one out a couple of years ago, Sputnik's Guide to Earth. It's not a new idea. Uh, uh, an alien coming to Earth is not a new idea. And for that reason, um, I, I kept it in the background. 
and then it just kept coming forward with everything I thought right I just gave into it you mm-hmm. know and I thought right okay now I'm going to do it but I'm going to do it properly and I'm going to do, do it differently from anybody else uh, and I not for me to say whether I've succeeded but I really like this story mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. I think it's original it's um, funny in parts and who am I bigging up my own book um. <laughs> well you know there are I think it's probably true that there are no completely new ideas but actually the way that you write them is yes. where the originality that's comes a, in. well that's what I like to think I mean you know the kids in time machines that's been done before kids becoming invisible that's been done before and this is this is nothing like E.T. <gasps> you know um, so exciting um, I think also you know the those kinds of stories might have been really popular, I guess, in the 1950s. You know, when space travels suddenly. Mm. And, we, and I think we've become really interested in those things again, but probably in a different way yeah. to we were in the 50s and 60s. Well, it's funny. I, um, after, when, I first, when I submitted the first draft, uh, my editor came back to me with a comment on one of the sections that he, he said uh, I needed to uh, look at again. And he, he said part of the story reminded him of the, the the field was of 1980s movies. He was thinking, I, th- I think, is it the Goonies and Gremlins and uh, E.T. and that sort of thing. There was a sort of... Close uh, Encounters. Yes, maybe. there was mm. a, And there was quite a lot of that going on in the 80s. Um, and he said, that he pointed to one little, uh, it was a, um, a subplot that, that was going on. And he, see, and he said, you kind of need to resolve that in a comedy way, which is what you would have done. It's just like a, a little. Even after the titles have rolled in a, on a film, suddenly you come back with a little punchline, yeah. and you go, "Oh, I'd forgotten about them." Yeah. Oh yeah, you know that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he pointed that out, I realised that throughout the writing process, I had kind of imagined it as that sort of story. Um, and right. but without having ever articulated it in my head. So, uh, and the title is the kid who came from space. The kid who came from space, and I'm mm-hmm. not going to uh, ask you what your aliens look like. Uh, I can tell can... you. Oh, can you? Oh yeah, they they well um, they are humanish, right? Uh, with uh, covered in downy hair, uh, with long hair on the head, uh, very big noses because they can smell really really well. Smell even better than human dogs. Uh, they've got twelve toes. I could describe them, with. Wow. Um, but they can with clothes. They can pass as humans, right? If, you don't, if you don't look too closely, and, <laughs> uh, and if they shave. Okay, excellent. So, Ross, it's been such a pleasure to have you in the reading corner today. It's been a pleasure to be here. Um, we love your books, and we can't wait to read the kid who came from space. Thank you very much. It's been lovely to be here and uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk, plus via iTunes or SoundCloud or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues.